good evening. And uh, it looks like uh, almost everybody's here. So I'll wait another minute or so. But I would like to encourage you to um, practice now while you're waiting for the talk. And of course, I want to practice right now because it's all practice. And the way I know how to do this is to stay aware of my body as I'm speaking. And I would encourage you also to stay aware of your body as you're listening. It's in the first foundation of mindfulness. It's a teaching. It's not right, it's not right speech. It's mindful speech. And there are two different teachings in Buddhism. And mindful speech is in the first foundation. And it's about embodied mindfulness. In speaking, there's a whole section in the first foundation of the, which is about mindfulness of the body, about how to um, practice in all activities, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, moving one's limbs, eating, going to the bathroom, speaking and listening. It's a mindfulness of the body practice. So just see what it's like to, in a very relaxed way, you don't have to do much because you're already here in your body or at least around your body or somewhere close to your body and just feel your body now as you're listening, as I'm going to sense my body as I'm speaking. And so it's, we start to become more harmonious with what is speaking and what is listening, not just what we're hearing and what we're saying. I hope that's clear. That's a very quick version of a of a quicker talk that I like to do about um, embodied speech and listening. And yeah, I think we'll begin. Um, I've been getting uh, notes about the pieces of the retreat I haven't been able to attend, including this afternoon. It sounded very moving, the piece about grief and the sorrow and uh, sadness and difficulty of grief, of grieving. And uh, you'll hear, I was a grief counselor for many years. And of course, grief is just a pure expression of the heart about what we love or those we love who have been gone. And uh, I've been asked to speak about um, the third heavenly messenger, which um, uh, is about, um, you know, sickness, aging, death. Uh, and so I want to talk a little tonight about my and our relationship to death and dying. And it's really one of the things that struck me when I was first drawn to Buddhist practice was uh, I'd studied with a, a an inter very interesting guy who had a lot of cities. Cities are kind of powers that come when you get certain transmission just from being around the person. And this person had a lot of cities and it was really interesting. It's like being on drugs sometimes to be around someone with cities. You just get the state of consciousness like that. And it's wild. And I like wild states of consciousness and things like that. So I practiced with him until I got kicked out of his group after um, almost a year. And that's a whole long story. I didn't do anything. He just, he just, 
He wanted people who were totally devoted to him, period. And I wasn't that kind of person. And, uh, and so I started, but I'd learned how to meditate while I was around him. I mean, really loved meditation. I was meditating a lot, even while I was with him five times a day at home, I would meditate. And uh, so I started going, but I like meditating with people because it's very powerful to be in the field. Like even, even now we're in a certain field. And if some of us are very sensitive, you can actually feel the field you can sense the field at times, or when somebody's speaking, their experience gets transmitted, you know, God knows how, but you know, on the internet, you can feel what's happening. And the field is a powerful part of, as I said, at the beginning of the retreat, it's a sangha. And it's a, it's a jewel or gem because of its beautiful power to help awaken us together. And so, um, and so I went looking for places to meditate. So, cause I liked meditating and with people and, and you could go to Zen center at five 30 in the morning in San Francisco, and you could just go in and then you could sit and then you could leave and you didn't have to relate to anybody. And I wasn't really interested in relating in a real way, but I liked being with other people sitting. So I would go in, I would sit, and then I would leave, and it was very powerful. But one thing caught my attention. It's how they called people to practice. And they had a big wooden um, plate of wood, and they would bang on it, and they would hit the wood like this. And the, and when it got faster and faster and that last hit means you better be in the Zendo in the meditation hall or you can't come in. And so that was the call. But what was even more interesting was what was written on this big plate of wood, big wooden plate plaque. Um, uh, what was written on there that, that they used to call you to practice and it said, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste your life. And that's a very, very traditional Zen, slightly fierce way to call all of us to practice. Great, and they're, and they're praising both right? Great is the matter of birth and death because it's, it is, it's, it's amazing that we're born and amazing that we die. I mean, and of course, you know, we can describe it and explain it like how it happens and what happens. And, you know, science likes to explain everything in that way, but really where the hell do we come from? Really? not just scientifically, not just biologically, but where do, where do you come from, 
right? Which is, of course, a, a variant of the Zen question, who are you? What are you? Right? What is consciousness? And what is embodied consciousness, which is sitting here understanding me in some way, shape, or form right now, even though I'm just going like this? No, don't, 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 dinka, right? And I'm, I'm playing a little just to show you even language is magical. We make up words and something gets transmitted. Something gets understood. And it's part of the beauty of both life and death that things come alive and then they, and they stay for a while and they change and then they go or they leave or they die. And um, it's a beautiful teaching, the heavenly messengers, right? I mean, beautiful teaching about, um, uh, about these four um, calls to wake up, right? That happened for the Buddha after he left his privileged environment that he lived in. And if, if he was living now, I would say, oh, yeah, he was an upper-class privileged guy, and he had everything he wanted. And, and his parents were trying to keep him there by giving him everything he thought would make him happy. But he went out and he saw, you know, an, an, a sick person, an old person, a dying person. And then he saw somebody who didn't live in the usual um, conventional reality. And he was inspired by that person, the mendicant, the monk, the nun, who he might have seen, right? But there's a companion teaching that's very similar to the heavenly messengers that I love, that I'm going to read to you a bunch of it. I'm not going to read it all because it's just long, but it's really interesting about what happened for him. It's another It's another a version of what led him to awakening, just like it's understood the heavenly messengers led the Buddha to awakening. Also, here's another version from the suttas. It said bhikkhus, practitioners. And he explains, he's telling his story to his friends. He says, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My parents even had lotus ponds made in our palace one where red lotuses bloom, one where white lotuses bloom, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. A, a white sunshade, a, an umbrella, a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, dew. I had three palaces, like the, he's a privileged guy, right? He's upper class for his time and place. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. So you can also use your imagination to hear the kind of privilege he took part in. And he was a total hedonist at that time in his life. He, he was a prince. He just wanted what he wanted and got what he wanted. And getting what he wanted made him happy. 
And then he says, and he's explaining how he came to awakening in this slightly alternative version. He said, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, he had a reflection. He said, when an untaught ordinary person themselves subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, they are horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious to themselves that they too are subject to aging. In other words, he's, in, he's saying, he's reflecting on the fact that when he sees, he sees an aged person, he has a reaction to that. And it's not uncommon even in our world, like if you watch um, television commercials, often it's always about, here's how you could look young, look good, be like that. This, you know, you don't have to ever really age, right? You can always look the same way you looked when you were 19, which I see all of you look like you when you were 19. And, and uh, me too, right? I'm, this is how I, I didn't have the beard at 19. Now I could barely grow a beard at 19. Uh, I was happy I could shave. <laughs> um, and so, and he, and then he goes on, he said, uh, right? He says, if I, I who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, would be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. That would, and I'm going to interpret, he says, that will not make sense for me. And as he noticed this, he says, as I noticed this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. Okay, so that's key line, in my opinion, right? As I noticed this, the young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. So his, his intoxication drops away. And then he goes through the same thing with um, illness, right? He says about being an ordinary person subject to illness. And if you have a reaction to illness, that would not be fitting. That would not make sense because I too will be ill. And when I and when I saw that I am not beyond illness, when I noticed this, then the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. Again, that's key line. First, it's the young person's intoxication with youth, then the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. And even though, and then he goes on to talk about uh, um, death. He talks about, you know, having that good fortune and that, you know, when an untaught ordinary person subject to death has a reaction to death, right? Is horrified, humiliated, or disgusted, oblivious that they too are subject to death. If I do that, then then um, it would not be fitting for me. It would it would not make sense, even logically, because because I too will die. And as I and he says, as I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. The living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. And so this is another of the fundamental teachings that leads to awakening, whether it's in the mythology of the heavenly messengers 
or this teaching of the Buddha speaking to his friends about his intoxication with youth, with health, with life. And it's very significant to notice how you hear what he's saying about intoxication with youth, health, and life, right? Because he doesn't say, he doesn't say don't enjoy youth or don't appreciate health or don't love life. He doesn't say that. He says, let go of the intoxication with it right? Drop away. He doesn't drop away the enjoyment or the appreciation or the love, but he wants, he says, what dropped away was his intoxicated. Have any of you ever been intoxicated? Anybody here? Few of you. Some of you never drank or smoked pot or took drugs or anything. I know that you're a rare person, but you know, most people have had some experience of being intoxicated. And when one is intoxicated, there's a lack of clarity. There's a lack of perceiving clearly what's actually here. And it can be fun. I'm not saying intoxication is even bad. I'm just saying, would we want to be intoxicated all the time, right? That's, and some of us have been, and that's a real problem, right? And it's why there's so many good things like 12-step to help people who become addicted in different ways, whether it's to alcohol or drugs or, and of course, many of us are a little addicted to media. And, and of course, it'd be great to drop our intoxication with media, with technology, with our, I don't have my phone here. I should just start talking and looking at my phone while I'm talking to you because we're so intoxicated with every moment online, right? Hmm. So the question for your reflection is what's intoxicating about youth? What's intoxicating about health? What's intoxicating about life? And I'm not looking for answers and just sometimes, I don't, I don't think anybody's doing this. Some, in some of the groups I teach, people start sending responses to me on the chat. Don't do chat when you're hearing a talk. Listen to the talk. Take it in in your, in your uh, mind, in your heart, in your body. So it starts to be metabolized before you start to respond to it so much. But I'm just planting the seed of that question about what's intoxicating. And, you know, what what and for me, I'll, I will answer it. What what falls away when I let go of my intoxication is the intoxication with stasis, the intoxication with the belief that something can last forever or will be permanent, whether it's youth or health or life. And again, it doesn't mean I don't enjoy and appreciate and love all of those, but it means I know they're not permanent. They're transient, they're ephemeral, they're evanescent. And I I like those words because I don't exactly know what they mean, evanescent, but it's poetic and I like poetry in that way. And, And it has the flavor of the magic of impermanence. 
that nothing is actually permanent. Nothing that I know of is permanent. And of course, later tomorrow we could talk a little and you can say if you know something that's permanent, because I haven't found anything so far and I'm happy to find something. You know, I mean, I, I love this cup and I love different things. I don't have it here. I, oh, here it is. I love my bell, right? I love the bell. But it's, and it seems very permanent. I mean, it's metal. It seems like it lasts forever. The bill too will go. It will, it may take a little longer than when Eugene goes. Eugene may go before the bell, but the bill will go too because everything is impermanent. And that's important in Buddhism because it allows us to relax and let go and not be intoxicated by the belief or even the desire that everything be permanent. It's just not the way it is. It's not true. And so what is possible is for us to come into harmony with the way things are, with the Dharma. Remember, Dharma means truth, with the truth. And that is freeing for all of us. And that's why the Buddha was freed by the heavenly messengers and by letting go of his intoxication. Hmm. And I, I know you talked about grief this afternoon and it's very, uh, it's very uh, powerful form of love, grief. It's a very, very beautiful, I would say, even though it's difficult experience. Not always, but often difficult to grieve. And some of you have had the de death of loved ones recently, and some of you um, may have a, uh, what's the, there was a word we used to use, pre not preliminary, it's like ahead of time grief, pre-something, a, a grief that's ahead of time. It's not gone, but we know it's going to go. And so we there's a grief that happens even before it goes, because it will go. And even we will go. Some of us have terminal illnesses. And so it's more acute, the knowledge that we will go. Even though I can totally assure you that all of us will go. Right? Anybody, anybody disagree with that? Just raise your hand. Because as far as I know, we're all, the body will die, right? These bodies will die, whatever age they are, whatever shape they are, whatever color they are, whatever gender they are, whatever sexual uh, uh, um, orientation they are, whatever economic status they're part of, whatever educational status they're part of, bodies are impermanent. And that's not a mistake. You didn't do something wrong that your body will not live forever, that your body will die, that it's not a mistake. It may feel tragic or scary or horrendous, but it's not a mistake. Everything that's born dies. 
Everything that's born will die, as far as I know. Flowers, beautiful flowers. I love you. See, I, I try to have flowers here on on my stage, right? I used to be in the theater, so I know a little bit about stage. And so I like to have nice flowers for people to see. And I like to see them. Even when I see myself, it's like, oh, how do I look on the screen? You know, I'm on a screen now teaching. Didn't used to be this way before COVID-19. And, you know, and so, you know, there's so much that's good in life, um, but it's all going to go. The flowers are going to go. I try like hell to water them and keep them healthy and keep them here. And they just go. And of course, it's the same with the animals, right? You know, my wife has a dog who she loves. She totally loves this dog, Grover. She'll she'll love that I mentioned Grover in the talk, really, because she's like in love with Grover, who's a little uh, uh, Havadis dog, and uh, and I and I love Grover. Grover's great, but he, not my dog. He's her dog, meaning she's responsible to take him out, which I like that. And because I had my own dog for many years, I used to walk him every day. I walked him at least ten thousand times, at least probably more here in San Francisco. And he was great dog, Max, Max the dog. And Max was a real dog. He wasn't, he wasn't a little Havanese. No offense to any of you who are Havanese lovers. But, um, but, um, but Max died. And the grief, really, I even remember it. I feel the grief. I just, I was still a young man. I don't, I hadn't wept so much. I wept for this dog, Max, because he was such a, a friend and a companion and cared for me in many ways, really. He was just a beautiful being in another body, right? And of course, I've grieved for other people, but, but uh, Max just, there was something very special about that. Anyhow, I'm just, I'm just acknowledging the grief that may be in the room and, and the part of uh, death that's difficult. And it's difficult for, I would say, all of us at different times with different people or different things because we different things die. It's not just bodies that die, but bodies die, but all kinds of things die. Worlds change and go away. And I've often said this, I've lived many different lives in this life. And I've watched these lives be beautiful. When I was, I was born in Detroit and lived in Detroit and some, had some really hard duke in Detroit and also loved Detroit totally. It was such a great city when I was a boy. And when I left and didn't go to college, I went to New York City. And then New York was born. And I had an incredible life in New York for a, not that long about four years, but it was it was totally wild and fun. And this is, I'm old, so this was in the 60s in New York City. And it was a wild time to be in, in the Lower East Side in, in 1960s and being part of demonstrations and riots. And, and I was performing in a street theater in New York that was a political street theater. And so there was a lot, a lot we were doing, we performed. I, I would just remember we performed for the young lords who were a Puerto Rican version of the Black Panthers, and we performed for the Black Panthers, and we performed at all these, all these different um, 
demonstrations against the war and against racism and against, and I remember we had one of the first ecology plays. We had a play called the water play about the preciousness of water. This is 1960. And it was still, it was something about the earth and knowing the earth was good and we wanted to care for it. And so anyhow, but I've had different lives in in New York and in Oregon and San Francisco, whole different. I could tell you different stories about each one. And they've all come and died, come and gone. Like New York is gone. The street theater is gone. I still have contact with one, two, three people from the street theater. Is that right? Yeah, three people who, who I totally love. But I mean... We never see each other, right? <laughs> right? We all live in different worlds and have different lives now. And uh, but the street theater is gone, and that time is gone, and that era is gone, and what happened then is gone. And it was all good, and I I miss it. I I grieve it, but I also it's not the kind of grief that's tragic grief. It's normal grief. It's grief because nothing stays. And it's true of other parts, times of my life. And so at one, one time in my life, I got, when I was, got interested in Buddhism, I got interested in death because I knew it was part of Buddhist practice and teaching. And it was when the Zen Hospice Project started. How many people know the Zen Hospice Project? Just let me see. Okay, some of you don't. So here in the Bay Area... My good friend now, Frank Ostaseski and Martha DeBerrios started the Zen Hospice Project. And Martha was total bodhisattva and Franco was a real doer. And, uh, and, and, Mar- and Martha was a Zen priest. And, uh, and, and Frank, I don't, I don't even know what Frank was, but he just was interested in death and he knew how to make things happen. And so he and Martha worked really well together and they started this and I wanted to join, but I'd been on a, I think I'd been sitting on a six week retreat when they did their original little training for some people, not a lot of few people. And, um, and I came back and I kept calling and nobody responded to my calls. I'm remembering this. And fi- I must have called at least eight times. And finally, I got Frank on the phone. And I could hear, he was like, well, who are you? And what do you want? And, yeah, well, we already did the training. And I said, well, well, if there's anything I can do to help in any way, tell me, call me. I, I want to be part of the. I'm interested in learning about this. He said, okay, okay, well, give me your number. And, you know, he, he mostly wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy. That's mostly what he was checking. I kept asking me questions. And then uh, he said, well, I'll call you if we need something. And he called, he said, we may need for you to go pick up medicines and drop them off or things like that. I said, sure, happy to do that. And then he called me just a few days later and they've gotten their first person into the hospice, which was still at Zen Center. They didn't even have a separate building. So it was at the Zen Center here in San Francisco. And and he called me and he said, well, would you be willing to do a shift? And I'm like, I hadn't had any training, but I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm from Detroit, sure. 
you know, I was, you know, yeah, I'll do a shift. It's, he said, it's four hours. You'll spend four hours with her taking care of her. And I'm like, okay. And so, and I think I'm going to go to Zen center and he says, I'll meet you at Zen center and then I'll take you up to work with her. And uh, he meets me and I think he's going to train me or at least tell me something. And he just takes me up and he says, uh, Eugene, this is Stella. Stella, this is Eugene. He's going to be with you for the next four hours. And then he leaves. And, and inside, I'm like, where the hell are you going, bro? I don't know what I'm doing. But Stella, and Stella was a woman who was dying and was a big woman lying in bed, couldn't move very easily. Yeah, I'm remembering Stella. She was just a beautiful being. And, and, and so I started talking to Willa and, you know, I asked her a few questions. And then at some point I said to her, I said, well, Willa, you know, I just want you to know, I didn't have any training, so I don't know what I'm doing here. And she laughed. She was so great. She just laughed. She said, ha. Huh. She said, well, well, dearie, we all need a little help sometimes. I'll help you out. <laughs> and she did. And she taught me how to be with her. And, and that was great because she could say what was needed and what wasn't needed or what worked and what wasn't worked. Even though I knew how to be here, meaning I knew how to be in myself, I didn't know how to take care of somebody who was dying or what was even needed. Um, I just knew that it was highly valued in Buddhism to contemplate death. And this was a way to contemplate it. Yeah. And I could tell you a lot of stories about Stella and her brother who showed up from Texas, who'd never seen anything like Zen Center and all these people in dark robes. And, and he was, he was, and he too was totally moved by what happened. Although it took him a while to get used to the scene. It was not his scene. And, uh, he just, I'm going to tell you at her, at her memorial, he said a beautiful thing. Let's see if I can remember it all. He, he, people were saying things about Stella as part of the grieving process. And because um, she'd been living at Zen Center with all these people. And uh, he said, he said, he would say, he said, I'm so grateful. And there was a, people get him from a bunch of flowers I'm grateful for you taking care of Stella, my sister Stella. And you did a good job. You were good. I got that. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for these flowers. These are, these are good flowers, beautiful flowers. I'm grateful for the flowers. And then he said, and I'm just grateful. And that's all he said. And the third one was, of course, the Zen way to say it. I'm just grateful. It's just what it is. It's just gratefulness. So, so, and I, and I worked with a lot of different people while I was in hospice who were dying. And it was all kinds of people, whether it was at Zen Center or then in the Castro in San Francisco, which was a gay neighborhood. There was a small Zen Center opened up and they started a hospice during the HIV epidemic. And, uh, and uh, I worked with somebody named JD there, the first guy I worked there. 
I got called in to work with JD and JD was lying there like this. Here, I think I can show you. He was lying in bed like this. And he was dying and his, and his body was spasming in this way, right? And so I didn't know exactly what to do and I just kept my hands on his hands to try to help him relax. Because that's, you know, it, they were telling me he was going to die in a day or so, something like that. And I just put my hands on his hands and helped calm him down, calm him down. I remember spending the time and he calmed down. And then, and then he was, and he was, he was kind of out of it almost the whole time. And then at some point he was more there and I was trying to move him. He was not easy to move. And I moved him a little bit and uh, I said, JD, uh, how, how, did, how, did, how, do you, how was that? How do you feel? I said, JD, tell me how you feel. And then out of nowhere, I mean, out of God knows where, he went like this, he went, and he could barely talk. He, could barely, he was like saying things like this when he did talk. But he barely talked. And then all of a sudden he said, he said, it feels like I'm God and you're a saint. Like from nowhere, he says this. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, because I'm just trying to be with him. And of course, I thought he could be right, you know, at least about the he's God part of it. And it was so moving to be with JD. And here's the wild part of the story. JD didn't die in a day or two or in a week or two. He actually got better at the hospice and got kicked out of the hospice. Now that's not easy to do to get kicked out of the hospice. He got kicked out and he lived for almost a year longer, really. And that was beautiful. And But it was just wild. See, and I'm saying this because you never know what's going to happen. And that's part of the truth of impermanence. It's not A, B, C, D. It's A, Z, F, G, A again. Who knows? And that's something we learn as we come into the moment. We don't even know what's going to happen in the next meditation, right? We don't know. And we just want to be here and be awake, be aware and see what's here now in this moment and then this moment. And even now, sense your body, be aware of your body and your listening in a very relaxed way and just see what's here. Is it the same body as whenever I started, whatever time it is, you know, 30 minutes ago? Or does the body feel different? Even if it's just subtle difference or a minutia of difference. It's a different body. It's a different moment, right? Every moment is arising and passing, arising and passing, being born and going away, being born and going away. Yeah, I've got a quote here somewhere about that. This is from uh, uh, Nana Talopa. Nanataloka, excuse me. Um, he said, in addition to death in the conventional sense, in Buddhism, marana refers marana like marana sati, mindfulness of death, marana sati, 
Murano refers to the rising and passing away of all mental and physical phenomena, the momentariness of existence. The momentariness of existence is described in the Vasudhimaga. In the highest sense, beings only have a very short instant to live. As a wagon wheel, when rolling, as well as, as standing still, at any time rests on a single point of its rim. A wheel just rests on a single point of its rim. Uh, just so the life of beings endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. This is one of the understandings, especially in Theravada Buddhism, that actually there's just a single moment of consciousness and it arises and passes. And then the next moment of consciousness appears from who knows where, but it's here. And then the, and then it ceases it dies, and then the next moment arises and passes. For it is said, the being of the last moment, wait, I'll read you the whole thing, right? Beings endure for only a, a length of a single moment of consciousness. When this is extinguished, so also is the being extinguished. For it is said, the being of the last moment of consciousness lived, now lives no longer, and will not live again later. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not lived yet, now also does not live, and will not live later. The being of the present moment of consciousness did not live previously, lives just now, but will not live anymore. This is from Nanataloka. And what's being pointed at is the magic of reality of this moment, of right now. It's not that you're not here. You are here for just a moment. And then you're here for just a moment. And technically, you're not the same being from moment to moment. We, we add on. We have memory and we have feelings, and we have sensations, and we recognize all of them. And so we add on continuity. But actually, nothing is static, even us. Nothing is static. And it's a beautiful word, static. It comes from stasis. There's no stasis in all of reality. Everything is arising and passing, being born and going away, living and dying. Every moment lives and dies. Hmm. Let's see, what else did I want to say? So death. So really what I'm hoping and what I believe Buddhism does in the many, many, many different ways they point to death Remember, Maranasati is in the mindfulness of the body section of the four foundations of mindfulness. It's not somewhere else. It's right here in the practice of meditation. I think it's Bonnie keeps pointing to uh, Bhikkhu Analyu, Analyo's teaching of the Satipatthana. Yeah, and I love Analyo, and I love the Satipatthana, and I love uh, teaching. I've taught with Analyo because... I teach mindfulness of death retreats, which I believe I have one somewhere in March in, in Spirit Rock. And the mind and he loves mindfulness of death. 
and it's part of his everyday mindfulness practice. And it's a beautiful part of our practice because it's right in mindfulness of the body. And, and there it's a contemplation of what happens. The Buddha would actually tell his, uh, his uh, followers, students, he would say to the, uh, to the nuns and monks, the women and the men, who were interested in waking up, he would say, go to the channel ground and contemplate what happens uh, to the body, right? This is called external. Meditation is both internal and external. This is an external meditation. Actually, it's both. You'll hear it. I'm going to read you a little bit of it. He would say, he would say one goes to the channel ground to see the co- a corpse cast away in the channel ground one day, two day, three days dead. And here, this is vivid. So um, you can picture it or you don't have to, but it's one way to actually do the practice is to imagine it. Also to get pictures, which I have of what happens to body as they, they decompose, right? He says, one day, two days, three days dead, bloated, livid, festering. One applies it to this very body, this body too, such as its nature, such as its future, such as its fate, right? That if this body at the end, when we die, when, when life ceases, if we just leave the body out, this will happen with this body also. And then he says that again, if one were to see a corpse cast away in the charnel ground, picked at by crows, vultures, hawks, by dogs, hyenas, and other various creatures, because this would happen in the charnel ground. This was actually, um, charnel grounds, just to give you a little class context, if you had enough money, then your body was burned, right? You were cremated. But if you didn't have money, if you were poor, your body was just cast away. And then that's what happened to it. At least in the, in the uh, South Asian tradition, right? And then, um, and then he goes on to say what happens after, as the days go on. So, right, so it gets picked up by the animals and then it becomes a skeleton smeared with flesh and blood connected with tendons. And then it becomes a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood. Then it becomes a, a skeleton without flesh or blood connected with tendons. And then the bones are detached from the tendons scattered in all directions. Here a hand bone, foot bone, shin bone, thigh bone, hip bone, back bone, rib, breast bone, shoulder bone, there a neck bone, jaw bone, tooth, skull. And then the bones whiten and somewhat like the color of shells. And then they pile up more than a year old, decomposed into powder. And one applies it to this very body. This body too, such as its nature, its future, its fate. And then he goes, because this is all about mindfulness of the body, both internal and external. And then he says, he says, in this way, one remains uh, mindful internally on the body, in and of itself, externally on the body, in and of itself, and both internally and externally. And one remains aware of the phenomena of the origination of the body, of the passing away of the body. And then one is mindful there is a body, 
uh, is maintained uh, to the extent uh, possible for knowledge and remembrance, and one remains independent, one remains independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And there you hear the goal of this kind of meditation and practice that we've been doing here right now. One remains independent, not dependent on what's not true, not dependent on our wishes or beliefs, dependent on the truth, living in the truth, being freed by the truth. This is how a bhikkhu, a practitioner, remains focused on the body and the body. So the contemplation of death also in Buddhism is not morbid. It's about seeing what's true, whatever it is, whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, whether it's what we wish for or not. We want to see what's true so we can start to relax right here, right now in this magical moment of being alive, the preciousness of human birth. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese monk teacher for many people. He said, Thich Nhat Hanh said, the intention of this practice is not to make us weary of life, but to help us see how precious it is, how precious life is, he said. Not to make us pessimistic, but help us see the impermanent nature of life so we do not waste our life. When we see the impermanent nature of things, we appreciate their true value. That's a very famous classic Buddhist teaching. When we see the impermanent nature of things, we appreciate their true value. Uh, um, uh, Ajahn Chah would say, he would hold up a cup. And Ajahn Chah was my teacher's teacher in Asia. And Ajahn Chah would hold up a cup and he would say, I love this cup. I love this cup because I know it's already broken. Right? Even though he said, but it's a really good cup and it works, it holds the water, but I also know it won't last forever. It's, it is impermanent because everything is impermanent. And so I don't hold on to it. I don't attach to it. He holds on to it while he's holding the cup, but he's, but he's not, he's not um, believing this cup is going to last forever. And this cup, I, I really like this cup. I like how it looks. I like how it feels. I like the design of it. You know, I can't even, can you see a little of the inside? It's got different colors. You know, it's a nice cup. It's beautiful. I love to have this cup. But, and it's kind, it makes me happy to have this cup. But I'm not attaching my true happiness to having this cup. It makes me happy in the moment. And it's good. And same, same as with the bell. I love this bell. I love, I love Zen bells. They really ring well. And so, but, but this is not, and it, you know, and I was really happy to get it, especially if you're in the same room, you don't have to deal with the zoom sound. You can really hear how good it is. But, um, um, but my real happiness is not dependent on that bell or this cup, or anything, right? There's something more precious here 
than the things I have or can get. You know, I keep having some fantasy of having a Tesla. I would love to have a Tesla, right? Because it's great. They're electric cars. I don't have a place to plug it in here because <laughs> I live in a building with no garage, right? And and so, you know, I keep thinking, how can I get a Tesla? I have a friend, a couple of friends who have Teslas, and it's like, you know, and uh, also I like small cars because I live in the city and you have to park. So I wish they, I want they make a Tesla about this big and that would be perfect for me. I have a little teeny mini when they really made real minis and were really small and they're fun. Anyhow, um, so um, the other place, another place that death is talked about in Buddhism that I want to share with you is about, um, oh, I'm going long, huh? I just realized that. I, of course, I keep thinking we started at 6, and so I have till 6.45. But that's because my um, uh, mind hasn't stayed the way it used to be, so I forget things like that. So I'm going to go a little late in a few more minutes. Um, just that the last piece I'll mention is from uh, the Buddha's death, because the Buddha dies, right? Buddha's not a god, Buddha's not a, some magical being who lives forever. The Buddha's a human being who awakened. And then he said, oh, what, what happened for me can happen for you. And of course, I'm pointing at each of you sitting here. And you all may have your doubts about that, but he didn't have his doubts about it. He knew it could happen for you. Whoever you are, however old you are, whatever your circumstances are, whatever your condition is, you can wake up. And so he, in, in his, the sutta, the Mahaparinibbana sutta, he knows he's going to die. You know, he's a little bit psychic, the Buddha, and he knows he's going to die. And so what does he do? He goes around to everybody who he's taught in different places, and he talks to them about how to live life. Mindfulness of death is about how to live life, right? About what, what's important, and you can reflect on this for yourself, what's important in life for you now, no matter what your circumstances are, what's in, what do you care about? Angela has her dog, and I bet she loves her dog. And it's beautiful. Yeah, I know, of course. And so it's, it's what do you care about? What do you value? What do you love? What's meaningful to you, whoever you are, wherever you are, in whatever circumstances you're in? What do you care about? What do you want to do with your time, whether you have 50 more years or 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 or 15 or, or, or five or one or six months or three months or two months or a day? Because none of us knows when we're going to die. None of us. And if I had a longer talk, I would tell you about my near-death experience because I learned something about you never know what's going to happen. And it can happen It can happen while we sit here. And of course, I've taught retreats where people have died on the retreat because it's not that they did anything wrong. It's because 
we're not in control of reality. We want to come into harmony with the way things are, with the truth, and with the truth of the impermanent nature of reality. Oh, I have so many good things to say. I hate to end now. I didn't even tell you about my work with my parents dying or anything like that. But, but that's life, right? There's not enough time. We can't do it all, no matter what we want. We have to let go and relax and just see what unfolds here. I'll just end with a quote. I have a few different, I have a, 10 different quotes here, but it's from, it's from Mahatma Gandhi who led uh, India out of, you know, slavery, just about, not slavery technically, but, you know, being owned by the British at that time. Mahatma Gandhi, he said, live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were going to live forever. Live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were going to live forever. Stay in this retreat. Give yourself to the retreat. Practice 24-7. See what you learn here as you stay present. And of course, 24-7 just means this moment, and then this moment, and then this moment, one moment at a time. Thank you all for your kind attention. Please have a good evening of practice, whether you're staying up late or whether you're going to sleep. It's always great to practice in bed. It's, it's, it's a perfect thing. You lay down, you practice, be mindful of your breath and body. And if you fall asleep, no problem. You're, you're going to sleep. If you don't fall asleep, then you're meditating. Either side is good. Okay, be well. I'll see you all tomorrow morning. Okay, I'll do this. One last bell. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.